Colossians chapter number 1. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 9. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9. Paul, writing to a church that, by the way, he had never met face to face. He tells us that in chapter number 2. But though he had not seen them face to face, they nevertheless dwelled in his heart. And he says in verse number 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we love You this afternoon. Thank You for letting us be in this place. Thank You for what You've already done in our hearts, our minds this morning. And Lord, thank You for the good, sweet time of fellowship that we enjoyed. Lord, we understand the Word of God ought to have preeminence in the house of God. Lord, we don't begrudge that one bit, but we are mindful to thank You, even when we get moments of of fellowship, to sit across the table and enjoy each other's company and rejoice in in your goodness in our lives. So we're thankful for that opportunity as well. Lord, now I pray that these few moments, I know it would be very easy with our bellies full, Lord, with with our our minds weary, it would be very easy to drift from where we're at in this moment. But help us instead to keep our focus and attention on the Word of God and to give room for you to do a work in our hearts this afternoon. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Colossians chapter number 1, I'll be honest with you, you could pick any verse in this chapter and preach for hours and never begin to even scratch the surface of the truth and the depth that is set before us. But there is a phrase that Paul makes in verse number 9 that I want us to notice. And then I want us to just look at a few of the things that he says following and see what the Lord will say to our hearts this afternoon. Paul says this in verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it. Now he's talking about heard about their faith. That's what he says in in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love which ye have to all the saints. And he says in verse 9, ever since we heard about what God had done in your life, how you were being used of Him and, and, and how you loved one another, he says this, we do not cease to pray for you. I want to preach to you for a few moments this afternoon on praying for one another. I think very often we see intercessory prayer or praying for one another as merely being sort of a a well-wish, sort of a a, a condolences or thoughts. That's the terminology that the world uses. They'll say our thoughts and prayers with people. I find this, the more people think about me, the less they want to pray for me. Amen. And uh, it's become a byword. It's become a proverb. And I'm fearful that even amongst God's people, how often do we say, hey, I'm praying for you when we really aren't? How often do we say, I'll pray about that when we're really not? How often do we ask others to pray for things when we're not praying for them? How often do we ask others to pray for things that we ourselves are not even praying about? Uh, Prayer has become this sort of abstract concept in the world. But I'd have you know that prayer is not abstract in the Word of God. Prayer is very clear, very descript, very distinct. Prayer is talking to God. It is it is a conscious activity. It is an intelligent. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to be smart to do it, but it does mean that it is not something that is merely impulsive. It is not something uh, that is uh, just merely an experience of emotion, but rather it is intelligently, consciously, distinctly talking to God, bearing our heart, our thoughts, our wishes, our fears, talk, telling Him about those things and asking Him 
him to act in accordance with his will in intervening in those situations. But Paul here talks not just about praying for ourselves, but about praying for one another. The biblical term for that is intercession. To intercede, to go between one person and another, to go on the behalf of a person and bring a matter before someone that can resolve the issue. Intercessory prayer is oftentimes dismissed and ignored. I fear and feel as though a lot of the reason that our prayers don't get answered is because we're not praying for one another. When we're praying for one another, we're displaying a heart like God's heart. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for others. Just burp then. That's fine. I don't care. Give me something. He's praying for others. Intercessory prayer is not a throwaway concept. It is not merely a courtesy that we offer to one another. In fact, as we study the Word of God, we'll find that intercessory prayer or praying for each other has a large place in the Word of God. Notice a few things with me, just topically, by way of journey before we get to our text. Notice with me first off the precedence of intercessory prayer. Do you know the first time the word pray is used in the Bible in regards to speaking to God about a matter is in a matter of intercessory prayer. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham goes down and sojourns with the Philistines. And you've read the story, no doubt, before of the lie that they told when they went. They told it when they went to Egypt and they told it when they went to the Philistines. I found this, the things that we were apt to do when we were in the world, we'll do again if we return to the world. Isn't that what Abraham did? He did it when he was in Egypt. He did it when he went to uh, Gerar and when he went and dwelt amongst the Philistines. And God warns Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, about the error of what he has done. And, and, And listen to what God says to Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man, his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. You know, we often, as we study the Bible, follow what we call the rule of first mention, that the first time that something is mentioned in the Bible, there are certain qualities and characteristics that will carry forward throughout the rest of the Word of God, unless something dispensationally changes or shifts that in some way. And you know, it's interesting, the first time the word prayer is mentioned, it's somebody praying for somebody else. It's not Abraham praying for himself. But it's him. And by the way, you couldn't find a man more out of the will of God at this time in his life than Abraham was. But nevertheless, because he knew God, because he had a relationship with him, God tells Abimelech, go to Abraham and get that man to pray for you because you can't pray for yourself. Man, I'm glad there's been times as a son of God, I can always, I always have a right to come pray, but I'm always not in a right condition to pray. And I'm glad that there's times when I can't pray for me, others can pray for me. I'm I'm glad there's times in my life when I don't, I ain't got enough sense to pray for me that others are praying for me. Times when I don't know what I need and I don't know how to ask, but I'm glad that others are praying for me and I'm glad the Holy Ghost is making intercession for me. So there's a precedence for intercessory prayer. This is not something created by the greeting card crowd to build an industry. This is something biblical. This is something that we find in the Word of God. In fact, it is so biblical that there's not only a precedence of it, there's a precept for it. We could go to a lot of places, but James 5.16 would suffice for the moment whenever James says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. In other words, we are not just commended, but commanded To pray for one another. If you're not praying for others, you're letting down a responsibility that God has commanded of you. 
Not only is there a precept of it, but we find there's a priority of it in the lives of those that knew God. I've always been struck by this verse in 1 Samuel 12 when he is turning over the jurisdiction, the governance of Israel from his own self over to Saul to be king. Listen to what he says, his parting words to Israel. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, 23, he says, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. He says, it would be a sin against God if I knew you needed prayer and I knew I could pray, but I refuse to pray for you. Not only do we see the priority of it, we see the prominence of intercessory prayer in the Bible. Uh, when you look at our Lord's ministry, uh, we find that intercessory prayer loomed large within it. Now, let's all go ahead and admit there, uh, there was very much less that Jesus had to pray for for Himself than you and I have. But it does not change the fact that much of His time that He spent in prayer, He was praying for other people. He prayed for the disciples. He prayed for others in His daily life. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't just praying for himself. He was also praying for the strength of the disciples. In fact, if you go to John 17, we won't go there now, but that entire chapter is occupied with an intercessory prayer of the Lord praying for His disciples and those that would believe on His name. Uh, not only in His daily life, but even in His death, intercessory prayer played a large role. You remember, I mean, we've, we've quoted it so much, but when He hung on the cross and He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What do you think that was if it wasn't intercessory prayer? He's praying for those that can't or don't know or will not pray for themselves. But he says, I know I can pray in their stead. We see it in the Lord's earthly ministry. We also see it in the Lord's heavenly ministry. We said this a moment ago, but you say, now preacher, what's Jesus doing nowadays? Well, he's praying. He's praying for you and He's praying for me. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that He's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. The Bible calls Him the great high priest of our profession who's passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What's His current earthly or His current ministry presently right now? Is He seated? You say, preacher, is it worth it to pray for other people? Oh, I don't know. That's what Jesus does with His time. That's what he's busy about. You say, preacher, does it help folks to pray for him? Well, that's what he's doing. I'd say that puts a pretty great priority on it. And then uh, we see a plea for intercessory prayer all the way through the Bible. I just, you know, again, you look at these thoughts, you could pick a thousand verses, but I just picked out 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Isn't it amazing that a man like Paul would want other folks to pray for him? I think we often view it, uh, sadly so, as a weakness to have to go to others and ask them to pray for you about a matter. But i tell you something, no less than the Apostle Paul asked folks to pray for him. He said, pray for me. We need strength. We need help. We need an open door. We need all these things in our life. I'd say this, what fools we are if we're not asking people to pray for us. And listen, what failures we are if we're not praying for other people. So Paul lived what he preached. And in, first, in, in Colossians chapter 1, he begins to describe his prayer life for the church at Colossae. Now again, this is a group of people he's never met. He tells us in chapter number 2 that he's never seen them in the, in the flesh, never seen their face. They've not seen his, but his heart goes out to them. And he knows though he cannot get to them, that he can still get to God for them. And so he begins to pray for them. And he lists three areas of their life that He's praying for them. I think about the things that we pray for for other people, and I would say this, that as long as we're not asking someone to pray about some matter that is uh, sinful or unscriptural, then there's nothing that we shouldn't ask people to pray about. 
But I would say this, we often, you think about some of the low things that we pray for. And I'm not trying to get high-minded. Don't misunderstand me. Hey, there's times, listen, when your fridge is bare, you pray for food. When your bank account's empty, you pray for money. Right? Uh, when your, when your family's around, you pray for peace. Like you, I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. I wonder sometimes if we're really praying up to the potential that we have in front of us. When Paul prayed, man, he, he didn't just pray, well, keep the car running. He didn't just pray, well, give him food. And none of these things are bad. And I'm sure there were times that Paul did pray for those things. But what he pinned down, what he wanted them to know that he was praying about, were far more grand in scope. Notice three things, and we'll say a word about them and be done. Number one, he was praying for spiritual vision for them. Verse number nine says this, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. What are they praying about? And to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He wants them to know the Word of God and to know the plan of God for their life. You know, the greatest thing that we can really pray for for another person apart from their salvation is that they know and do the will of God. Uh, let me tell you, as a parent, and, and you as a parent ought to be doing, we ought to be emphasizing the will of God to our kids. Far too long, man, we have lived in a world that has ensnared, enslaved, and co-opted the parenting of our children by, by propagandizing them to believe that success is measured by temporal means. Now listen, I, I, don't, I don't want my kids to be dumb and poor and ugly. <laughs> no more than you do. I don't want them to be like me, amen? But I, <laughs> success is not measured in life by them warding off those things. And far too long, we've let the world tell our kids that if they can get a fat bank account, they've succeeded. That, that if they can get an attractive spouse, they've succeeded. That they, if they can get a high-profile job, they've succeeded. Uh, what are we supposed to be doing? We ought to be telling them, hey, you need to know the will of God and do it for your life. Whatever that is, you do that, you've done everything that your God and Creator has expected of you. Notice there's three things he mentions here. One, he's praying that they might receive the truth, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. God don't want us to barely have the knowledge of his will. He wants us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, here's the problem. Oftentimes, we define God's will as our curiosities. There are a great many things you wish you knew about that are not pertinent to the will of God for you to know. Uh, most of the things we probably are curious about are things that we don't need to know to do the will of God. But the things that we need to know in order to carry out the will of God, I want you to know it's the will of God for you to know the will of God about the things in the will of God necessary for you to carry out the will of God. I just, doc- I just Dr. Seuss to you, didn't I? <laughs> Fred, Fred said, I'm right with you. He was one of the barbecue judges, so he's sharp right now. He's <laughs> What we need to know more than anything is what does God expect and desire and long for out of our life? I'm not going to get ahead of my message, but you know, in, in verse 10, he talks about walking worthy of the Lord and all pleasing. You know what? We ought to want to know more than anything else. God, what would please you out of my life? I'm not against educating children. Some of them I am, but, but most of them I'm not. 
I'm not anti-education. I'm not any of those things. I'm not an educated person. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed at that, but, but it's the reality of it. I'm not. I, I took, I, I, I took, uh, a, a few weeks of college over the course of three semesters at Pellissippi. And I, you know, I'm not an educated person in any way, shape, fashion, or form, but somehow we have educated people or, or maleducated them into believing that, that education of itself is a virtue. Listen, you can be smart and dumb at the same time. If you don't believe that, turn on the Internet, man. Uh, some, of the, some of the smartest people walking through the world are the dumbest people. But you know what helps folks through their life is if they know the will of God for whatever it is for their life pertinently, presently, and how they need to live. The will of God, more often than not, regards the virtue of the way that we live more than it regards the details of our everyday life. It's not to say that God doesn't have an opinion about where we go and what we do, but if we'll get our hearts submitted and in a right condition to serve God wherever we're at, we'll find that when it's time for God to guide our footsteps, He will guide our footsteps. And so Paul is praying for them, and what he wants is for them to know the will of God. How many of our our loved ones' problems would be solved if they knew and did the will of God? How many people with broken lives who you're burdened for, who keep you up at night, how much better their life would be if they knew and did the will of God? He's praying that they might receive the truth. And I would say we do need to pray for people to receive the truth. A great many people, and the flesh particularly, is never willing to receive the truth. And so it takes a a supernatural spiritual work of God for people to receive the truth. So that's what he prays for. Second, he's praying that they might realize the truth. Notice what he says, in all wisdom. Now, by realize, I don't mean apprehend it intellectually, but that it might be realized in their life. Now, you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is the right scriptural, spiritual, biblical application of knowledge. This is the distinguishing character between smarts and spirituality. This is why there's times that dumb people can be spiritual and smart people can be carnal. Is because what it really boils down to is taking the knowledge you have and applying it in a biblical way. To be wise is to take whatever limited knowledge you may have and to say, now, how would God expect me to apply? What should I do with this? Solomon, the wisest man outside of the Lord Jesus that ever lived, would consistently throughout the book of Proverbs talk about the importance not only of knowledge, but of wisdom. He drew a distinction between the two. And can I tell you, it's not enough to know the will of God. You've got to do the will of God. I grew up in Christian school. Man, I mean, you talk about, you ain't never met such wretched kids as grow up in Christian school. I'm talking about wicked, hard as a coffin nail, black as the charred walls of hell in their soul. And you know the reason for a lot of it is because they know the truth, but they don't do the truth. Truth has a, has a, a, a calcifying effect in the soul of a person that rejects the application of it. You can't, you can't get the truth and be unchanged by it. It will change you. It's either going to soften you or it's going to solder your heart closed. One of the two. And I grew up with kids that some of them went one way, some of them went the other. You know, I mean, some, some of them are deacons in churches today. Some of them are Brandon. It's, there's, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know why? Because they had knowledge. Some of them, they didn't apply it. They knew, man, I could, I could, I could show you people with wrecked lives, with wrecked lives that know more Bible than I do. You say, preacher, why ain't your life messed up like that? Not because I'm the smartest, but it was because there came a point in my life where I had sense enough to say, I know what's right and I'm going to do it. The messes I make in my life come from me saying, I know what's right, but I'm not going to do it. 
And so it's not knowledge alone. It's the application of it. We don't educate people into spirituality, even though biblical education is important. That is not enough in and of itself. There has to be a breaking of the will. There has to be a bending to the desires of God. So he's praying that they would realize the truth in their life and then that they would relate the truth. He says, and spiritual understanding. In other words, that they would take the truth of the Word of God and of the knowledge of God's will and that they would not only do it, but understand how it communicates with their life personally. It's amazing the hoops that people will jump through to try to make the most relevant book throughout all of history relevant. Can I tell you the Bible's relevant already? This is very, very simple. You don't have to twist it. You don't have to warp it. You don't have to, you, you ain't got to drink Mountain Dew and put a backwards hat on and wear skateboarding shorts and be cool to get people to understand it. You don't have to do none of that. Here's what you do. You read the Bible in its context. You read the Bible in its context. You read the Bible in its context. The context for what I just said is you read the Bible in its context. If you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. You might know biblical things, but if you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. You read it in its context, look at what God was doing in the lives of those to whom it was written and that it was written about, and then make application of that in your life. In other words, you don't go through and twist it and look for shadows and secret clues and word searches and all that nonsense and and try to deduce and draw something out of it. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of theological terms, but it's supposed to be exegesis, not eisegesis. It's supposed to be drawing the truth out of the text, not reading truth into the text. And, and, And people go through all kinds of hoops, but here's what Paul prayed for. He said, I'm praying you'd know the will of God. I'm praying you do the will of God, and I'm praying as you do the will of God, you'd understand how the will of God applies to your life particularly. In other words, it's the will of God that we go to church. You know what that means? My family needs to be in church. It's the will of God that we tithe. That means me and my family, we need to tithe. If you want to use the term grace-filled giving, that's fine. But if you're pretentious enough to use that term, you have to double tithe. That's the rule. <laughs> that's grace. That's right. I don't, I don't want. I don't want to hear none of this. This low grace field given, right? And we can we can argue about the terminology and Levitical offerings and the tithing system, and I'm fine all that as long as your check don't bounce, okay? So that means my my family ought ought to be tithing. I ought to raise my kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So that means that I practically, day by day, need to teach actively, deliberately teach my kids what the Word of God says and means and how they are to apply it to their life. Man, on and on we could go. We could talk about having a godly marriage. We could talk about serving God in the local church. On and on we could go. But what Paul's saying is, I'm praying that you would understand, in a a macro sense, the will of God. What's the will of God for Christians writ large? And then he's saying, I'm praying that you would do that in your life. And as you do that in your life, that you would understand how the will of God applies to you distinctly. Not that it's a private interpretation. Not that it's this is good for me, but not good for you. But understanding that in each of our distinct situations, that there are going to be certain ways that God applies His truth in our life and certain things He expects out of us. Here's what He's praying for, man. He's praying for spiritual vision. Number two, look at verse 10. He says this, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's praying for spiritual vitality. In other words, he's praying that God would give them the energy, the zeal, the enthusiasm to serve Him. I understand, listen, this is not about 
conditioning you to emotional responses to certain triggers. And there's a lot of churches that that's all church is, right? It's all, it's all just trying to condition people to respond emotionally to certain things. But let me tell you something. God also created us with emotions. Our emotions should not take the place of God in our life. They shouldn't govern us. They shouldn't rule us. Let me tell you something. I've known the Holy Ghost long enough to know He ain't scared of our emotions either. He uses them and wields them for the glory of God. And as such, man, I'm reminding people, say, well, it ain't all about being zealous and zeal and enthusiasm. Hey, the Lord, the prophecy about the Lord was that the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus was not half in about serving God. He was all in. He was not afraid to be expressive about serving God. And Paul's praying that they would have that same vigor, that same zeal, that same excitement. He talks about it in three ways. One, he talks about spiritual vitality in the walk of the Christian life. He says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. I'm going to tell you something. I, I get intimidated by that verse. I think to myself, how could I ever? But then the Holy Ghost has to prick my heart and say, but I commanded you to do so. How could I ever walk worthy of Him? Well, here's the truth. I may never be worthy, but my walk can be worthy. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't deserve Him. But I ought to live in such a way that to the best of my ability, I'm living a life that I would be proud for God to claim and own. That I don't have to look and say, you know, I'm ashamed that I'm only giving Him half of what I got. I'm ashamed that, I, that I'm not giving Him my 100% dead level best. Curtis Hudson, you say nothing ever has been done for God with spare change and spare time. Man, we have relegated God to just being a, a, a passenger seat observer to, to the scenic tour of our life. What a sad thing that is. Don't you think He ought to have the preeminence? Paul says, man, I, I'm praying. I know ain't none of us worthy, but I'm praying that you give it all you got so that he is pleased with your life. Not only the walk of the Christian life, but vitality in the works of the Christian life. He says, being fruitful in every good work. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, think about a farmer or somebody gardening. You can be fruitful in your work, but you cannot be, you do not control whether you're fruitful in your harvest. Uh, we were talking the other day. And we, uh, me and Brother Kerry were, we were talking about uh, gardening and talking about seven dust, putting seven dust on plants. And he don't believe in that. Pray for him, you know. I don't know. He got a little hippie in him, but, but we were talking about, we were talking about, um, we were talking about, you know, he said, well, what people do 200 years ago? I said, they grew a lot more stuff is what they did 200 years ago. Because half of what they grew would get eat up by the beetles. Not these beetles. Not those beetles. But beetles. <laughs> and so, you know, what they do, they couldn't guarantee what kind of harvest they get. But they could put more out to make sure they got a good harvest no matter what. Can I tell you something? You and I, we don't control how much the harvest is in our life. We can't, we can't demand or coerce or predict that we will be fruitful in our harvest, but we sure enough can in our planting. He says fruitful in every good work. Not just barely. Not not barren in some good works. But he says you ought to look at your life and fill it with every good work that you possibly can. We ought to be looking at our life and saying, you know, am I giving God 100% on every Level Not only the works of the Christian life, but the wonder of the Christian life. He, I like this. He says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, he's already prayed for God's will. 
But now he doesn't just want them to learn from God. He wants them to learn about God. And he does not give any limiting factor here. He doesn't say, well, increase in the knowledge of God till you hit 55 and retire and start dragging a camper around. He doesn't say, well, increase in the knowledge of God until you're smarter than the average preacher, because that don't take much. He doesn't say increasing in the knowledge of God till you just your schedule gets too busy and you can't do it anymore. He says, no matter where we're at in life, our pursuit, our goal, our aspiration ought to always be to increase in our knowledge of Him. He said, I'm praying that you don't ever get stale. Man, how stale we get, how stagnant we get. We're like that old scummy pond that ain't been moved by a breeze in ten years, just a film growing over it. And then we'll come in, we'll ask some evangelist to come in, work a miracle and raise our dead Christianity for us. And then we wonder why we ain't got nothing from it. Well, the truth of the matter is, man, I mean, uh, if we're not having vitality in our life on a daily basis, we shouldn't be surprised when deadness sets in. It don't take anything. I mean, it don't take anything. If you Listen, you quit mowing the field, it won't be long. The saplings will start springing up. You ain't got to try to backslide. You've just got to quit trying. And it'll happen on its own. I, I see that he's praying for spiritual vitality. And finally, and I'm done this afternoon, still, for spiritual victory. Look at verse 11. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. He says, I'm praying that God would give you the strength to do everything that I've been praying for you for. I wonder how often we pray for God to do things, but then we neglect to pray for God to give the strength for the things to be accomplished. Strength is necessary. It's important. The book of Nehemiah, or the book of Nahum says the joy of the Lord is our strength. We need strength in our life. Elijah uh, was laid up. And, and, and too weary to go on. And the angel didn't lie to him and say, well, just look within and draw deep and believe in yourself. He kicked him and said, you better eat something because the journey is too great for thee. We need strength. We don't like to think that we do. We like, as we preach this morning, to imagine the same sort of, of scandalized defense that the Jews felt at the notion that they were in bondage. We do the same thing in the matter of our weakness. Well, I shouldn't have to go to the altar. I'm a good Christian. Hey, I don't care how good a Christian you are. We all need strength. Man, I I shouldn't have to ask others to pray for me. I I mean, I should be praying for others. Well, God bless you. Pray for me. But guess what? We all need strength. You're going to need strength in your life day by day. So he prays for him. Two things. Notice, number one, it's secret. Strengthen with all might. Now, I don't have all might. You don't have all might. I don't even have a little might. I might have a modicum of might. I don't have hardly any might. How am I going to do that? Well, according to His glorious power. It's His. It's not mine, it's His. Well, let's just break that down. I mean, it's already, we ain't even supposed to start evening service for like three hours. You've got plenty of time. Notice this word, according. I love that. J. Vernon McGee one time told an illustration uh, about the, the difference between between out of and according. And he told the story about two rich men, multimillionaires that were on a golf course, and they had had caddies with them all day, and they came to the green on the 18th hole, and they were finishing up. And one of the fellows reached into his pocket and pulled out a $5 bill and handed it to his caddy. He said, thank you, I appreciate all your hard work today. The other man pulled out a $100 bill and hand it to his caddy and said, thank you so much, I appreciate all your hard work. And Dr. McGee said the difference is both of them tipped out of their resources, but only one of them tipped according to his resources. I'm glad God don't just bless us out of his resources. He blesses us according 
to His resources, according to His glorious power. You say, preacher, how much strength can He give me? How much do you need? How much do you need? He can give you over and above, according, and then it says this, to His. It's not my power. This is Paul learned this in his life, that when he was weak, then he was strong. And the reason is very simply that when he had strength, he tried to lean on his strength. And he found that his strength was not very strong. But when he was out of strength, pressed beyond measure, could not do it, found the sentence of death in himself, he found that he began to look to God's strength and that God was mighty and strong. It's his power. It's not our power. He said, preacher, I don't know if I'm strong enough. Nobody's asking you to be. I, I can't tell you the numbers of times people balk at selling out for God, going all in 100%, and this is the reason why. Well, I just don't know if I could really do it. No, you're missing it. You can't really do it. The whole point is that you can't do it. But this is why Paul spoke in these terms. He said, I die daily. He said, I learned I could not do it, so I quit depending on me to do it, and I found that God was full well able to do it. It's His power. And then he says, this His glorious power. I think it's glorious in its expression, but I also think it's glorious in its experience. As we glory in the Lord and as we seek for God to get glory, think it's glorious power. By its character, by its nature, it seeks, it demands, it desires glory. God displays His power that He might receive glory from that. As we give God glory in our life through our weakness and seek for Him to get the glory out of our life, is it not in perfect keeping with Him that He would strengthen us as much as He can get glory out of us? Now, we're getting into deep waters, and, and you probably ain't got time or energy. Some of y'all are nodding already. But, but part of the reason God weakens our strength is so that He might display His power. It's in God's interest to do it. Otherwise, we boast in ourselves. And that's why there's a richness and a blessing and a beauty even in loathsome weakness that our flesh detests, that I hate by experience and that you hate by experience. There is purpose and providence in it. And that's why Paul could say, I will therefore rejoice in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said, I found out when I was giving God glory, God gave me strength. He gives strength so that He can get glory. So don't it make sense that if you'll give Him the glory, He'll give you the strength? Notice not only the secret, and I hate to end on this note. Some of y'all don't care as long as I end. But look at the end of verse 11. What's the purpose of it? Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power so that we can leap tall buildings in a single bound. So that we can whoop all those people that have been mean to us. So we can tell everybody off. So that we can prove to them how great we are. No, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. <laughs> You know, you know why? You know why he, he gives you strength? So that you can wait and worship at the same time. Patience and long suffering. I don't like patience. I will go ahead and tell you, I, patience, I'm bad at it as a general rule. I, I'm not, I don't like it. I hate it. I loathe it. I detest it. I don't understand. I ran multiple red lights on the way to church this morning. I'm glad y'all think that's funny. Law's got warrants out for me. My wife tell you, I don't like to wait. I'm that person. I'm that person sitting in a drive-thru losing my testimony because somebody's up there ordering for 800 people. When people like that, if they won't go in to the restaurant, should probably be tarred and feathered and shot. I don't, I'm, I'm impatient. And my flesh detests the notion that God would give me strength so that I can be patient. 
Let me tell you something about patience. Patience is not waiting. Uh, if you don't believe that, you don't have kids. My kids will be impatient. They'll still have to wait, but they will wait impatiently. If they want something and I tell them no, they will just sit there and vibrate <laughs> until... They're waiting, but they're waiting without patience. Patience is not waiting. Uh, patience is waiting with the right spirit. That's what patience is. And that's what he gives us strength for. And long-suffering. Long-suffering is, is, an, is an old Koine Greek word for putting up with folks. Baptisto, right? Is that it? No, no, that's, that's something else. <laughs> long-suffering. Putting up with people that probably don't even deserve it. That's what He strengthens us to do. And then, beyond all that, boy, this is it right here, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. God gives you strength to keep a good attitude. God gives you strength to put up with people that don't deserve it. God gives you strength to wait and wonder why, but keep worshiping nonetheless. God gives you strength in fact, to do the very thing he began by praying for them about to carry out his will. We wish he gave us strength to whoop everybody, to set everybody straight, to fix everything, to get the things we want, to get them right when we want them. But the truth of the matter is, it's not about your will and what you desire. It's about his will and what he desires. And as such, you know what you'll find? And this is what Paul prayed for him. He said, I'm praying that you'd know the will of God. I'm praying you'd do it with excitement, zeal, and passion. And I'm praying God would give you the strength to do it because you can't do it in your own strength. Are we praying for that for ourselves? Are we praying for it for one another? If not, wouldn't this afternoon be a good time to start doing that? I think it would. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. You probably have somebody in your mind right now. I'm not a prophet. I don't know that. But just knowing people, you probably have someone in your mind. As I preached, there was somebody you thought about that's struggling. They need strength. Somebody that's stagnating and they need vigor and zeal. Somebody that's drifting and they need the will of God in their life. Won't you come down and won't you pray for them? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.